welcome to a very, very special conversation with Brian, the podcast where we delve into the minds and experiences of thought leaders shaping the American landscape. In this episode, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Jessica Hannigan and Dr. John Hannigan, a dynamic husband and wife duo with an extensive background in educational leadership. Jessica is an assistant professor in educational leadership at the Department of California State University, Fresno. With a passion for designing and implementing effective behavior systems, she collaborates with schools and districts nationwide. John Hannigan, Jessica's husband, whose educational journey spans over two decades, covering roles as teacher, instructional coach, principal, and county office leadership coach. John's expertise lies in designing and implementing systems of multi-tiered support for academics and behavior. As the co-founder of Hannigan Ed Equity Group, LLC, Dr. John Hannigan continues to impact schools and districts throughout the country. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Dr. Jessica Hannigan, and Dr. John Hannigan. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they have decided to grace my presence. <laughs> my favorite couple and my awesome friends, John and Jessica, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks for adding us to this esteemed uh list of uh, pro profound uh, educators in our profession. Thanks for including us. You know, I, I have been asking you all to come on and I was starting to get like a complex because I'm like, <laughs> they keep telling me, yeah, we'll, we'll come on, Brian. You know, we'll, we'll look at our calendars. And a year and a half later, I finally get you on. But I think, um, I think uh, one of the things that I, I, I have thought about over the last, you know, six months um, in, in trying to get you two on is just looking at your schedules and how you juggled, you know, just massive things in the air to, to try to make it work. You know, at the beginning of um, each one of my podcasts, I asked my guests to talk a little bit about their personal journeys, their professional stories. So who are John and Jessica Hannigan? Yeah. Well, first of all, hi, Brian. It's great to see you. And John, John, Still talks about our time in Washington, D.C. You have to come back. Uh, to we, come back. Hey, next time I'm bringing my clubs and we're going golfing. And John John, I was going to say, you have to come back. And next time you have to work. And Jessica and I and John are going to have to <laughs> go. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that was I, and for those out there that like may not know you on a personal level. I just want to say D.C. is your town. Like if someone were to come to Fresno. Please. I'd, I'd be driving like 20 minutes to get them somewhere. You are literally like in walking distance, stone throw from all the monuments, like DC is your town. And we had we had a firsthand uh, guide to show us all the inside uh, ropes of the city. And we're yeah, grateful to, uh, to, to, for the time you took uh, to make, uh, make our, our, our trip down there special. So we just want to be my pleasure. My pleasure. So are you going to answer his question? Talk about, sure. yeah, talk about you two. <laughs> All right. So in May of 1975, I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, oh my goodness, Brian. I, I, I don't know. If, I miss I you know. all. 
I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I too was a division one collegiate athlete, Brian, just like you were a collegiate basketball player. I, uh, I was the mascot at Fresno State. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you out in our audience who don't know John and Jessica, they could have their own comedy act. They are hilarious. <laughs> So, oh, uh, you know, goodness. technically I was on the cheer team, but we just, <laughs> I just like to stop with, I was a division one collegiate athlete. I just want to, you know, but uh, so that's actually where my journey started in education. I was three quarters uh, done with a business finance degree. And then uh, my parents, after four years, they said, we're paying for four years of college. And so I knew I had a little bit more than four years left. And so I was walking across the student union and I saw a little flyer that said, uh, mascot tryouts to be the fresno state bulldog timeout and so i was like sign me up i can act like a fool no one knows who i am for a for a free ride absolutely sign me up and so uh it wasn't until uh we'd have to do a lot of appearances on school campuses and so i was like these kids are kind of cool you know it's kind of fun and so that's when uh because i come from a family of educators my mom was actually my pe teacher oh wow growing <laughs> up no, so, you, I, I, didn't, like, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I was like, I'm not going to go into education. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something else. But then that's when, that's when I was bit by the uh, the education bug, and that's where I was like, there's no turning back. So I changed my major, became uh, became a teacher, and actually my first job as a teacher was the school that I attended in Sanger, Lone Star Elementary. Wow. Yeah, and so then after uh, after so I this is going to take an hour, Jess. Wow. This is going to take an hour. This. This the story. And it's okay. It's okay. I'm learning a lot about you too. <laughs> I'm kidding. And so uh so yeah, top fifth grade at the school that I attended growing up. And so then my my principal at that time was like, Hey, you're great with the kids. And uh you ever consider being a principal? And I was like, No, I think I thought I'd just be a fifth grade teacher for the rest of my life. I loved it. And so uh that's where I got bit by the bug and became an admin and uh that that's where my journey uh really really began and then uh then that's where i met jess she took a team of educators from her school to go see the amazing things that that we were doing <laughs> jess, i'm gonna i'm gonna cut john off right now and ask about jessica hampton because we know you have your story as well but, i'm just one of the things john, one of the things you did say john is somebody asked you um, had you ever considered? And that was kind of my journey as well. Somebody asked me, my dad was a principal. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something else. But some, when I got into education, somebody asked me, had I ever thought about being a principal? And I said, no. And so I think, you know, I think along with, you know, all of our journeys, somebody has pointed to us and said, you can do this. Mm -hmm. They believed in us. Absolutely. So Jeff, what is your story? And and stick to it too. <laughs> So my story is I originally wanted to be a child psychiatrist. And so while I was at UCLA, I was doing a neuropsych internship and um, I loved the research aspect of it, but I realized I wanted to be with humans. I, I wanted to actually be out there implementing some of these things that I was researching. So when I was deciding on grad school, my mom is also a teacher so I was able to substitute teach. And I also just fell in love with the profession and then switched gears. And I originally started off as a school psychologist. And I was really passionate about bringing together the gap between general ed and special ed, specifically sure. around behavior. Yeah. And that's what kind of, you know, really drove my journey. And um, 
you know, became an administrator and then a district level administrator focusing on that passion area. And yes, I did take a group as an administrator to John's school site. However, the part he's missing is he also took a group of administrators and his team to my school site to see what we were doing around behavior. Sure. So it was an equal partnership. It was. It was. It was. Still and it is. And it continues. Yeah, it continues today. Right. So talk, <laughs> a bit, talk a little bit about um, that partnership and, you know, what you're doing today in terms of you know, multi-tier system of supports, behavior interventions, all the things that you're doing that traditionally when we were coming up, um, they were off the radar for kids. Yeah. Uh, and uh, honestly, what, what really, uh, what really did it was we, even, even as a, so uh, we were the first model PLC school for the state of California for elementary schools. And so that's where, uh, being able to, uh, to, to really partner with Mike and pick Mike's brain and the legend RTI at work architect. And, you know, I, I, I consider the success that we had as a title one school to be able to even outperform some of the more affluent, you know, neighboring, neighboring uh, districts that, uh, you know, we, our demographics resembled a lot of the rest of the state of California. And so right. it garnered a lot of attention and a lot of visitors. And so how do we then leverage what 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 was what allowed us to to achieve the same success to ensure that all students learn at high levels but we still felt we were halfway there because still you know behaviorally we saw that students um weren't thriving as best as they could so we wanted to leverage those same practices that uh, gave us the same uh, results in, in student achievement and then to to leverage those to give us the same results for that all students behaving decently yeah so that's where uh partnering with with uh with mike and austin to create the uh behavior solutions which really kind of just melds all things rti to then really focus in on the behavior aspect of things yeah jessica you mentioned that um john brought his school over to to, to you all what specifically were they they were you know, looking for or wanting to learn from you all? Well, we were definitely getting the outcomes around school discipline, climate and culture sure. in our county uh, and specifically addressing inequities and in school discipline for yeah. students of color and students with learning disabilities. So number one, I think they wanted to see what were we doing instead and what were these systematic structures um, that were in place? So I think that's initially um, yeah. what he came to see because what typically happens, and, and we have a lot of background around the work with PBIS, positive behavior interventions and supports sure. and restorative practices. Um, but what tends to happen somewhere along the line when the leaders haven't internalized these systems is um, is that we find this kind of surface level implementation. Now we have some posters, we right. have some tickets, and we don't discipline anymore. And what I always say is posters don't teach kids behavior, yeah. humans do. Exactly. And um, I think there, um, 
his school and a lot of other schools had kind of those basics. Oh, we have a matrix. We have some posters. We give tickets. The shine. But they didn't. <laughs> the sizzle, but no steak. <laughs> but they wanted to see an actual internalized system that was around problem solving for behavior beyond just some posters. And, right. and when you walked on to our campus, we had great staff Felt leadership. You could feel that. And our data was matching it. And it was being recognized at the county level and then at the state level and beyond um and and that's i think what prompted the visit and for me we wanted to make sure we were bridging that gap in academics as well sure. as we all know academics and behavior go hand in hand so we needed both do you um jessica when you, when you all started this process um and i'm sure it was new to some people how did you get people to and I don't really like the term buy-in. I like the term own because when you sell something to somebody, they can they can return it. But if they own it, it's theirs. Like Luis Cruz says something like, you know, people are less likely to tear down a fence that they helped to build. And so how did you help in your your teams help the staff build this so they owned it and they felt like this is ours? Do you want to? Okay, I get I could start, and then um, I know we. This is something that we talk about to this day. Uh, number one, if the leaders helping support the systems are not supporting the educators and believe in this work genuinely, um, it's not gonna. It's gonna be really difficult to do because you are gonna have very very difficult conversations yeah. all the time. Behavior is emotional. It's a little bit different than rolling up your sleeves and helping a student learn how to read. It becomes emotional. It could be triggering. Um, we're trying, you know, teachers are trying to teach, admin are trying to run a school. It could get overwhelming. Um, so uh, number one, the leadership team had to be on the same page around the work that we were doing. Sure. And, um, and we had to show with evidence that what we were doing was working for kids and for the staff. So we had to show those wins. We had to highlight the wins. We had to celebrate each other to continue the momentum. So it wasn't just, oh, they just don't discipline anymore. Or they don't, you know, um, yeah, maybe the data shows this, but you know, this is what the culture is like. It was the, the actual opposite of that. Yeah, well, people need to see um, that it works sometimes before they even believe in it, right? Like sometimes Absolutely. it's like that wait and see. It's like you can't, you have to behave people into better beliefs, not to tell them that it, it works, right? John, in, in your case, is, is it kind of similar? Very similar. And to, to your point of that ownership over buy-in is, is include them in the development and creation of this. And so that's where, you know, we work with a lot of schools that it's like, oh yeah, well, our mascot's a predatory bird. So our matrix will soar. And everyone's going to soar. And then we hand it out to staff and it's like, here's our new matrix. And everyone's like, what is this thing? What are you doing to me? Leave me alone. You know, and it's like yeah. upon others, whereas opposed to them saying, let's include them. What yeah. are these behaviors that we're constantly running around reacting to? Let's include them in developing this so that they feel part of, of, okay, this is how we teach students with first best instruction through the lens of prevention in tier one school-wide, the same way we do with our essential standards for academics. Sure. Students don't know it. What do we do? We teach. But then when it comes to behavior, what do we do? We punish them into obedience. And that's how they're going to learn. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's really the exact same approach. And that's what really helped me make that connection with, with our staff to get to that ownership level was to uh, a include them, but to explain to them that this is just like anything else. When students lack skills, we teach them whether they're academic skills like reading or math, same for goes for behavior. And yeah. Brian, um, you got, you got me thinking of one more um, aspect of it. And you too, John, as you were talking, sometimes schools have a bunch of things going on. I call it the everything, everything school. So yeah. it, it gets a little confusing. Like, oh, we have these classroom rules up. We have this matrix. We have a random behavior team. We have a wellness team. There, We have this second step curriculum and the connections of how they all fit together towards the goal of helping produce productive empathic members in our community is not there. Sure. And so no matter what initiative or initiative school implement, what we help do is ensure that they're putting in a systematic approach for behavior. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Who is taking the lead? How do we know it's working? And, and so that's what we do to continue building that capacity and ownership. And to that point too, we were, we, we work with a lot of schools that are like, we don't really do PBIS anymore. We're more restorative do they, practices. Do they do or, this? They do that. They do okay. <laughs> we do restorative practices anymore. We're more trauma-informed now. Like these things are all in competition with each other. It's like, if you know why you're implementing it, see it through, communicate the why this is important and, and see it through. And that's where they'll abandon it in pursuit of the next shiny object. So then it kind of communicates to the staff this too shall pass. We'll just run off and implement the next thing instead of seeing any of them through. Yep. I think a lot of times, and I think you might agree, is the the, the it's not the fact that many many of these initiatives are bad. Is that they're either implemented ineffectively, or people won't see them through, or there's just a misunderstanding, and so people say it doesn't work. And it's not that it doesn't work. It's that we just haven't actually implemented it effectively. All of those have a home on your campus. It's just. Where does this fit within, you know, like our RTI pyramid? If this is a visual graphic organizer of our school, where do each of these fit? So they don't seem like competing initiatives, but they all play a critical role in the success of helping students. Yeah, you know, let's kind of broaden it a little bit, you know, just from your individual campuses to where you are now, because, and, and we can laugh and joke, but you two literally are almost like the face of this movement of helping kids and helping adults help kids gain the skills. Um, you can call them whatever, um, those skills that are gonna allow them to be successful adults. Um, it's not so much the academic skills because kids can learn anything. That, but if we don't teach them those behavior skills, then our employers, when they go to college, wherever, they're gonna have a hard time actually learning it because they can't actually you know, self-regulate and do all the other, you know, you know, work as a team and, you know, all the things that we need them to do in order for them to be successful adults. And so as you all start to, you know, form this partnership and you start to write books and, and create workshops, tell me a little bit about your partnership and how you work together. And now you're to the point where you're work, you're, you're having national workshops all over the country um, to support not just individual schools, but districts and regions and states. Talk a little bit about that. 
Both of you, either just jump in. (laughs) I'm thinking, I'm thinking about where to start, but you go ahead and start and I'll add to it. I I think it's just that practitioner lens that resonates that we're, we're real with the, the educators that we're talking to. We give them um, anecdotes and our own personal missteps and implementing where it resonates with folks. We're not like if any one person presenting on behavior says, oh, if a student's doing this, just do this. And that'll, it's like that, that there's, it's a, a thousands of little things that make the big impact when it comes to behavior. And so when we, when we, uh, you, you kind of that practice what we preach, but we also as action researchers of having, uh, you know, teenagers and children in our own home, we're yeah. able to kind of live those experiences how was your day at school? Tell me about those teachers that make you feel seen and heard or when you feel like you belong. And so we're able to extract that stuff with them. Uh, and and, and to, to, to your point of then the, the teaching those skills here, we learned it with our own children during the pandemic where we just felt through simple maturation or genetics that our children would just inherently acquire these skills. And we're getting emails, you know, your child hasn't turned in anything in two months. And it's like, wait, what? Because we know these skills this? are not intuitive. They have to be taught and modeled, right? And modeled. So we put like a, a structures in play, like a self-monitoring log to help Rowan with her uh, to, to week by week. What are your assignments well, and start checking them off? Well, now Brian we, watches it. Sorry, Rowan. Now, now there You're was a chance. Great, there doing was great. a chance it could have been either of them. Now it was, you know, it was definitely very well. <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of layers to that question. It's a really good question. Uh, but for me, uh, what I hope and believe resonates is that we are 100% authentic. Every school district we work with we are so passionate about the work like this is to help save lives and i think that is something um you you cannot um ignore if you meet us this is not optional to us this is our calling like we are never going to stop advocating for for kids and i and i think that we incorporate that in our workshops and sometimes they're difficult conversations to be honest Brian it's not fun all the time being the behavior Behavior being the behavior people uh because you know there are some fixed uh behavior belief systems that um are really hard to also hear about kids. Um, but then on the other hand, you also see systems that are not supporting teachers. Right. So there, it's a, there, there's hard conversations at the site level, the leadership level, and also the district office levels that we have. But I think um, what has resonated is um, that it works. When you're actually implementing the systems and structures we are providing you, based on tried and tested practices. This isn't just, we woke up one day, we've been doing this together for years. It works. And when it starts to work, it starts to take off. And I think to answer a big question, that's kind of where it started. I think, you know, educators started started to see that uh, they, they will get outcomes if they invest in this work. And we are here to help them do that. And I would have to say, just knowing you two, and and you just said it, Jessica, you two are authentic. Um, You care deeply and you're real. And I think what makes me proud and also 
um, I really think it's just um, something that's just about you two, is that, and, and you said it a little bit, if, if people are pushing back or people um, aren't getting it, you know, you're just not going to just, you know, just say, oh, okay, just do what you want to do. You're going to, you're going to work with them to hopefully help them understand that this is so important. Um, the, the, the message should be, what would you want for your own kid? I always say this. And if, if it's good enough for your own kid, it should be good enough for anybody's kid. And you should be willing to examine every single of your traditional policies, practices, procedures, programs through that lens. And if it doesn't work for your kid, it should not work for anybody's kid. And you should be willing to abandon some of those things to be able to do what we're asking for all of us to do to make this a better world. Yeah, and we tell, I mean, we tell our schools and districts, we've gotten a little better at this now over the years, but we will say right from the get-go, this is not the easier way of doing it, yeah. what we are going to share. It's it's the harder way, but it's so worth it. Worth it, right? But let's talk a little bit about your, um, because you've written a number of books, 9, 10, 11 books, I can't keep track, but together, let's talk a little bit about just the the kind of the practical practical aspects of writing a book with two people, um, husband and wife, partners. How What does that look like? Can you take us through like the beginning of writing a book? And and I know, you know, you've written a, a, a couple of books with, you know, Mike Matos and Austin behavior books, but what does that process look like? And with your schedules, I don't think I mentioned it. Oh, I mentioned it at the beginning. Um, you know, Jessica, you're a professor at Fresno State. And so with all the stuff, your parents, John, you're traveling, all this stuff, how do you actually write a book together? Well, typically Jess will send me a final draft and I say, <laughs> I, knew you were... <laughs> I knew you were going to This is going to be really good. Can I put my name on it? <laughs> You've been hanging around Mike Maddow's too long. Uh, sarcasm. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. I, I'll start on this one. And then if you want to add um to it john uh, but john and i are very very reflective i mean we are constantly reflecting after each session before each session i mean we are constant it, it's just a constant reflection how could we be how, how could we get better how could we provide tools are, that are helpful those kinds of things so we're constantly reflecting and and this sounds a little strange but as we're doing that uh content happens jessica starts to get a little obsessive <laughs> around literally certain dreams. areas she'll dream up tools and, she will dream up a tool and i oh. typically this is where it starts i will dream up our next book it will come in my dream and people watching are going to be like she needs help she really does she'll but, wake up and say i figured it out and i and i'll say i have the next book and john will say Oh my gosh. Okay. Don't put a deadline on it. And, I, and I'll say it's already. Yeah, don't, don't make here. that clock start um, ticking yet. But, Hold on now. But really, so, <laughs> so I think like, as the reason I was saying we reflect so much is we reflect on those areas that are constantly coming up and there are highest needs. And then it's, we talk about it, we talk about it. And then it kind of initially the the idea of the like the title in the book will will come to me first in my in my dream and I'll bring it to John and I wake up and I'll say I had a dream and he'll say uh oh and then he'll grab his notebook um but really did it again really it takes both of us um we really believe that and then again that God brought us together for a reason 
um, because together we're able to take sometimes my big picture thinking, John's very detailed thinking, and we both could do a little of both, but I, something happens and I'm not saying it's always fun, Brian. It, it, you know, it's taken over all of our date nights and we make a lot of sacrifices, um, but something happens where we start just hashing out like each chapter, each part of the system, the structure, and, and, and then it, and then there's a book. <laughs> so within the workshops and, you know, trainings or working with schools and districts is that where we'll hear questions will reflect on either we weren't clear enough in the way that we taught it, or maybe there's a need here mm -hmm. that needs to be expanded upon. And so um, I'll give you a perfect example, like our behavior academies that in behavior solutions ended up in appendix B. We were like, where would this even fit? We feel like we can't like leave it out, but where did it just kind of breaks the flow if it's in the, and so and then all of a sudden it just became something popular that educators were, hey, what about these behavior academies? Can you explain a little bit further? And so that's really what kind of birthed this. This is a, a tool. And as a principal, we had second step. We had a lot of uh, um, targeted interventions for behavior. And we just saw that, you know, it, it wasn't, I guess, wiring the same parts of the brain that we wanted to for uh, you know our education teaching of content where then a student you know let's say they're putting their hands on someone we'd use those lessons and then someone cuts in front of them in line and they revert back to the, what they're familiar with which is putting their hands on it was like well why do they keep tapping into the same behaviors and so that's where expanding on behavior academies and i know this wasn't the question but just kind of thinking as far as like the yeah. progression of where this came so then we just became relentless around research of what are those ways to teach and have things stick? And we've really through the psychology of really elite athletes and Olympians of visualization and mental imagery and rehearsals where, you know, they've run that race a thousand times in their mind. So it's not unfamiliar when they get there, the uh, tiger lining up his putt, you know, he knows exactly uh, the slope of the green, the speeds, he's visualizing it and hearing the sound of the cup you know, or the freestyle skier that, you know, feels the wind on the back of their neck. They hear the crowd. The point is when they're in those situations, it's not unfamiliar. They've been there before. And so taking this kind of the psychology around mental imagery and rehearsals that is really creating the same neuropathways and wiring the brain of experiencing it. So how do we create through those sure. in our behavior academies the teaching of those replacement behaviors through mental imagery and rehearsals. And that's just been, we're so, this is like something we're so proud of that when it comes out in April, uh, because there's literally nothing like it in education, but that's where kind of starting with what was appendix B in behavior solutions to then expand it out into what's now the behavior academies. You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday. I was, and don't get mad at me, but I was playing golf. I was on the golf course and this person that was, playing with he he coaches AAU basketball or he's an assistant coach and he was talking to me about you know some of his players and he said the head coach said okay we are up by three we have two seconds to go they have the ball do not foul do not foul players do not foul what do they do they foul 
um, on, on a three-point um, play. And and he said, we said it five times. And I, and I asked him, did you rehearse it? Did you in practice? Did you rehearse it in practice? Did you have these scenarios in practice? I said, you know, when when there are stressful cis, um, situations, that that brain is flooded with cortisol. And yeah. so if they don't practice and learn how to manage those emotions and they don't they're not familiar with it, you know, all bets are off. You don't know how they're going to react. And so like you they'll were revert, just, we will revert to what they know and what's familiar. Exactly. Yeah. And impulsive. Yep. So this this understanding of you know the brain chemicals and in the brain and, and and what happens in stressful situations and you all know I mean you you're the experts especially when kids come from chronic stress right okay. when it's constant that it's fight fight or flight right for a lot of them and so how do we help them and and it, sometimes it presents as if they can't learn sometimes they come to school and they can't remember something or they're they're stressed they it's because of their their situation. Right. And so, Jessica, you, the psychology person, you know this. I can't even imagine what some of these kids go through on a daily basis. Yeah. I just I can't even imagine. Um, we see adults that struggle yeah. handling, you know, how to respond to traumatic experiences yeah. and stressors. And if you don't believe that, go to an airport. You'll oh, see yeah. people melting yeah. down or on an airplane. Okay. Or However... I, this is another uh, study of mine I'm going to do one day. You will also see the people at the gate that have been highly trained on how to stay oh, calm, yes. cool, collected. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go to one of their behavior trainings <laughs> and I want to know what they're being yeah. taught because they are so good at keeping that face, yep. keeping a direct anyway, yeah. but but uh, but absolutely. And, and that's the point we're trying to make specifically in behavior academies, which by the way, behavior academies is how you actually implement targeted based behavior interventions. So okay. it's not just certain academies, it's the thinking around what an actual behavior intervention is. I say this often, but an interaction is not an intervention. It is amazing. We should have interactions with kids. We right. should check in, we should celebrate their wins. But an intervention is ongoing teaching of those targeted life skills. And, and so that that is the, the really the critical piece. And even as adults, we need that. Because universally, what we see across the country when we ask schools, what do you have in place for tier two? Typically, the response is check in, check out, which there's nothing wrong with check in, check out. We're advocates check out, check in, check out. We use check in, check out. I use it, it with you all the time. <laughs> But it becomes this universally applied for everything. It's it was yeah. created for those repeated minor misbehaviors in the classroom. Right now, it's the students being a bully. Check in, check out. You can't stay in your seat. Check in, check out. You, you know, and so it just becomes well. If you can't keep your hands to yourself, you're going into a hands-off academy where you're going to learn self-control, managing conflict peacefully, empathy. If you're a, a bullying behaviors, it's going to be an upstander academy where you're going to learn uh you know social awareness empathy you know so it's like when when we think of what interventions work around reteaching academic content what makes it effective is the level of targetedness so yeah. if i'm a non-fluent yeah. reader you could give me a phonics screener and diagnose that it's vowel blends and diagraphs and get me reading fluently but then when it comes to behavior we just universally apply check and check out for everything 
and wonder why it's not working or that student that's been in check-in check-out since third grade and now they're in eighth grade and they're still in check-in check-out and it's like yeah. this last sentence. Thank you for calling it check-in check-out. I was at a training the other day and this girl comes up to me. She was great. She was lovely. She says, psycho doesn't work. She said, and what doesn't work? Psycho. C-I-C-O for check-in check-out, but they called it psycho. Oh that's really a pretty I'm good step red flag. Step one. Yeah. That's a good yeah. red flag. Step one, um, <laughs> wow. we, need to, we need to define change, yeah change the uh the okay. acronym yeah that that's not so behavior good. academies will be targeted and it'll also allow through mental imagery and rehearsals that we're actually training the right parts of the brain when we're building that inner toolkit for our students so if i was a teacher or a team that registered for behavior academy what and you just talked about it a little bit but what would that look like like is it a series of workshops is it a one-day workshop what is it so, so a couple a couple things number one we start off always with the why what why are we doing this in the first place um we have kids with repeated needs in academics and behavior, what 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 do we do? How do we respond? So at first we're talking about the why, and then we're educating on what an actual behavior intervention looks like and sounds like. And we have a very formal version of a behavior academy that re requires all the components of an initial session, ongoing session, and an exit session. So that is a very formalized training. That's not a buffet. It's not pick and choose what you want. You need to implement the entire system. And mm -hmm. then we have more informal ways that, you know, a teacher, even a parent could implement these academies at home. So um, number one, we always start with the why around and then the what around an actual intervention. And then we introduce our eight most popular behavior academies. When you, and call then them, we, where you going, Jessica, when you call them academies, because I was actually kind of um, I misunderstood. So when you call them academies, you're really just talking about processes. Yeah, well, we named it. It's called an academy because the behavior is the focus area. So let's let's call let's talk about Upstander Academy. So we are working on making sure that this student or number of students need some skills around being an upstander. So the actual name is always the the focus area. And then the reason it's called an academy is because by definition an academy is ongoing teaching. And so, you know, like police academy, any academy, you're not Air just Force going, academy. Air Force Academy, you're not just going once or twice. It is an ongoing teaching of these life skills. And we're seeing if students or in any academy, they're generalizing it to, to real life. So okay. when I say behavior academy, I'm talking a targeted area of a, it could be a student or groups of students that are going ongoing to learn very targeted life skills and replacement behaviors. And then the system is set up to support them generalizing it. So okay. that's what I mean when I'm talking, when we're, when we're talking behavior academies, that's okay. what we mean. Great, okay. So when when this comes out, and when, when's it coming out? 
April. April 17th, I believe. Which is close to our anniversary. It is. Should oh, we celebrate? We should. <laughs> we should. We should celebrate by doing a final edit the of our book. gift is your behavior academies, right? Uh-huh. So when, when, and I can see it in your face, you sound you're so excited about it. Is, is there any thought to, and maybe you've already thought about this, is there any thought to having um, some video um, examples to your academies? Yes, um, we actually, you read our mind. That's why we, we love you. <laughs> no, it just popped in my head. No, we, we literally, it was like you were just in our conversation yesterday. Number one, we both implemented Behavior Academies ourselves, and we just regret so deeply not recording some of those. Um, But we are now in the works of our schools that have been implementing it. Uh, We're in the works of trying to see um, who's willing to let us capture what those sessions look like. And um, we also want some younger versions and older versions of what an academy looks like. So that is in the works. um, But... It's not, you know, it's not part of the April rollout. Sure. What is, um, what is your thinking uh, in terms, I mean, after it rolls out and um, it's going to go big because everything that you two, you know, do, you know, turns to gold. Um, what's next? Um, because it seems like y- you don't stop. We got a couple projects. Yeah, we uh, it's already, already kind of starting. Well, this one's on the way down. It's just kind of pick up with the next one. Um, but uh, really just just continuing to try to keep the pulse as far as, you know, where educators are stuck and to give them hope and tools so that uh, they can see that, 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 that they're not alone, that the behaviors you're struggling with on your campus, schools are struggling with the same behaviors nationwide. And because I, I think what's, where a lot of new educators in our profession are leaving the field within the first three years and they attribute it to specifically behavior is because within the PLC process, we can, we can build that teacher efficacy around experts of our craft and learning pedagogy and instructional practices that worked. And, but when it comes to behavior, everyone, is kind of left up to their own. Like when I was, I got the keys to my classroom. I got the Harry Wong first days of school book and that was it. Off I went. And, and it's so, an awesome book. It's an awesome book. It's a, it's a legendary book, but, uh, but you know, in the teacher prep programs, we had maybe one class on routines and procedures. Yeah. So when we deal with those challenging behaviors in our classroom, it it is a blow to our self-efficacy as educators where it's like, Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe this isn't my profession where they need to see, look, these are normal behaviors. These are normal feelings. And and how do we leverage the collective capacity? Like you always say, the answers are in the room. You got folks in that building that are doing some classroom management skills, procedures, all those things exceptionally well. How do we leverage the collective to be able to build our own collective capacity on behavioral practices you know and and to keep you know growing as a as a school as a unit as a grade level team or department around uh the our supports for behavior because that's i think 
the most disheartening thing with our educators and why they're leaving the profession is because it is a blow to the ego. And we say, maybe this isn't for us, but they need to know it's normal. It's and, normal and there's hope. And Brian, to answer your question about kind of that, there's a couple of projects in our minds, but for me, um, I think our next uh, step is we want to capture these effective schools doing the work. Yeah. So we want to make sure now we're capturing and showcasing the data and the impact that we're having with this work nationwide. So that is what we're kind of processing around right now. Um, we want to make sure to really, when when I think effective schools, you have to also show me with evidence and data that this is helping kids. Yeah. So that that's that that's where we want to we want to get to next. We want to keep building the capacity of um, educators to do this work and have model sites and things like that. Yeah, I so think that's probably. I, I love that. I, I think you know one of the the beauties of what um, Rick and Becky and Bob did, uh, you know, with Solution Tree was to start to identify model schools because people will say, well, you know, this sounds great, but can I, can I find somebody, you know, that, that actually where it works and, and finding inspiration in the success of others is what you're talking about yeah. is, you know, having, you know, other schools who have done it. And again, I always say, because sometimes people will, or, or schools will say, well, you know, they, they can do that because of this, or they can do that because of that. Um, and I say, if you can find schools that look like you or, you know, similar demographics, then you can take the excuses off the table. Mm -hmm. For know? us, the way that we... Uh, absolutely. The, the, the way that we look at the success of, of a school and really the, the heart of their culture is really how they treat the most at-risk students on their campus. Because we've seen some very high achieving schools that still mm -hmm. rely on exclusionary practices and the hammer as a form of discipline. And to us, we think that they're mm -hmm. they're only halfway there, yeah. that those accolades don't really mean much when the most at-risk students are being communicated to them. We don't have time for you. You're not worth it. Go away. You're a burden. And that's what through exclusionary practices, what we're communicating the students that need caring adults most on that campus. And they got banners, flags, awards galore for their academic achievement, but that's still the beliefs of the adults of that way that they treat the students that need the most supportive, caring adults in their presence. And a lot of times, a lot of times, those banners, those flags, those awards, they're uh, a direct reflection of parent support. So those, those kids could go to any school and do well um, academically. I'm not saying because socially and behaviorally. Everybody needs support, but I'm just saying because um, sometimes um, we mask, uh, you know, our, our those who are the least among us because we have a population whose parents are, I don't want to say just well educated, but are, are know how to navigate the system and they they do well. And then the kids whose parents aren't, for whatever reason, not judgment on the parents, um, they get they fall through the wake you know, you know, the wayside. And I think that's what you're, you're saying, John. Yeah. yeah. Um, before we, we go, thank you all. Really. Thank you all so much for, for joining me. And uh, you have to come back to DC so I can show you the rest of, of my, my town, but. Um, and so that we can golf. 
<laughs> so we so we can we can hit the links, John and 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 Jessica. That's fine, you guys. I'm good. I'm good. You're gonna be working. You're gonna be working. You won't miss us. We're, we're gonna... Well, I love the educators over there. I can't wait to be back yeah. to work. <laughs> to work. Yeah, be, before we go, just along the way, we we have people who help us. Who have been some of those those people who, if I would say, you know, who are one or two or three people who you would point to? Who have really just been? I mean, besides your family, your, your maybe your parents, but you know, other people who have just looked at you and said, "I believe in you. you this is something that you can do," or, or or just at a pivotal moment in time where you could have changed directions or going somewhere else, but somebody said, "I see you, Jessica. I see you, John." Who are those people? Well, I would say when I was the teacher, Mr. Larimer, who was my principal. Mm -hmm. that believed in me first second to that is someone that you know rich smith mm -hmm. uh, awesome. gave yeah. me an opportunity to 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 become a principal and to to support me in leading um you know leading that team over at reagan and then of course mike yeah yeah what about you jessica i i mean i'm gonna echo this uh the, the same too of course 100 percent mike um mike believed in us from day one and and he's just continues to continues to support us daily i have to say i know i'm not supposed to but my mom and dad are really the champions um they you know they moved here um from a different country uh and education was their number one and that's all they wanted for their kids was to give us education so we could grow. So they are our number one supporters and champions. Um, but I have to also acknowledge um, one of my mentors, uh, Linda Hauser, Dr. Linda Hauser. She was uh, one of my doctoral um, professors. She was my dissertation. Chair. And um, to this day, she's like family to both of us. And she believed in both of us from day one. And what she taught us um, has changed our thinking it, yeah changed our, our thinking um from day one and there are so many there are so many more but um i think my parents and um linda hauser and of course mike is is who are my go-to's um when i need when i need that support and boost you know and before we go um what would you say you you mentioned it early on, John and, and Jessica. I think you mentioned it as well. What would you say to our our new people to the profession? Because we are losing people in droves. Because again, it's it's not them. They think they're not good enough, and it's that we put them in systems that are not you know built to or created to support all staff, all teachers, all individuals. So what, so what would you say to a first year teacher or a second year teacher or a third year teacher? who are now thinking, oh, I may have chosen the wrong profession, but I've always wanted to be a teacher. The word that comes to mind for me is initiative. And the reason I'm saying that is, um, is that sometimes you're not gonna be in that perfect environment with that perfect leader or with that perfect support structure, but you can yourself take initiative to learn, to grow, to, to have mentors, to go to conferences, um, to create those support structures. Um, I, I I just think that's really important. And I, I, I think that's a word that we really need to remember as we're preparing teachers and administrators, that it's not going to be easy and not um, 
not always is someone going to hold your hand and, and walk you through. There, there also has to be that in, initiative when that isn't there. Now, my perfect world, I wish it was yeah. for them, um, but that's not always the case. But yeah. this is you worked your whole life for this. This is your passion. So it's worth the investment. Yeah, I would, I would say just from, you know, being in education for over 20 years and even even like you, Brian, for being in education for probably almost 30, right? Over 30, right? An educator? Yeah, I'm almost 60 now. So beyond 30. Yes. Beyond 30. 30 so, but, but when we run into those 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 former students and their stories, their memories and, and the things that they remember, it's not that, man, that surface area lesson you taught changed my life, man. No, you don't hear stuff like that. It's those moments. And so for those new teachers out there, if you can find a way to somehow mental time travel, because me as an old dude now, I can I don't I don't have to mental time travel. I can give experiences and anecdotes from former students and hearing their message of that impact that we made for them. Some somehow to 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 mental time travel so that you can see in in some of your worst days or those moments, man, you're making a difference. You're changing lives. Yeah. Did you just use mental imagery? I think it was. You yeah, that was, uh, mental, there you go. There you go. Mental imagery. Is it too late mental to add that time. one to the book? Mental it's time a, travel? It's in the book. Okay, that, good. That is, uh, I think we can end it on that. I, I, I really want to thank you too. Um, you know, John, we met uh, at a, the first time we went to a, a, a conference together. And we, we um, that's the first time. And I hadn't known Jessica. Um, but as soon as we met, I knew that we'd be lifelong friends. And then, you know, the bonus is when I met Jessica and we all connected, I knew I had a, a brother and sister for life because just that, you know, we think alike in, in, in terms of just our passion for our profession, our passion for, for students, for, for, for kids. And I just, you know, I appreciate all that you two do because um, you could rest on, on your laurels. You could stop now and, and, and be fine, but you continue to push the envelope because you want every single child to have the life that um, your own children have, right? And so I think that's so important. So uh, I end each show um, with this this uh, quote from this old African proverb that I used when my dad passed away at his funeral um, about four years ago. And it's, as I go, I am wearing you. And really what it is, is just in all the people who have influenced, touched, um, enhanced Brian Butler's life, from the time he was born to, to today. Um, and I, I always say when I'm speaking, you're not seeing Brian Butler in front of you. You're seeing the hundreds of people who have poured into me and who I've just been influenced by. And you too are two people who I am wearing uh, because of just your, your grace, your honor, your, your professionalism, and just who you are as people. I will always wear John and Jessica Hannigan. So, Thank you so much for for coming on the show today um continue to influence and uh good luck with all that is to come in these next couple of years for you thanks brian we appreciate you thank you can't wait to see you soon in person we yes. wear you yes. next we're time you. I, next well i appreciate that next time i i see you hopefully you'll be you'll be here and we'll we'll get a chance to um just take you around the city a little bit more and john will play a round or two if jessica allows us Yes, we will. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you, too, and Brian. we'll see you all very soon. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on my YouTube channel and Spotify. <laughs>